Folks, Mackenzie Lambert here, your host for Making the Movies. It is July 2nd, 2021, and this show is two weeks away from the three-year mark. I want to thank everyone from the day one listeners all the way back with my first part of Friday the 13th to the people who just started listening with Duke Mitchell in the last two weeks. Whether you're listening in the U.S., Canada, Mexico, Germany, Ireland, Denmark, Russia, Japan, Australia, New Zealand, Tunisia, the U.K., France, so many countries that I just can't name them all. Thank you. I want to give a shout out to the people who gave me the time of day for interviews. J. Blake Fischera, Brendan Steer, Michael DeSerto, Russell Maggio, and Josh Becker. As part of the celebration, I have a few more guests for the month, but I'll get to that in a moment. To celebrate the three-year anniversary, I will be offering a belated birthday celebration to the iconic Italian director Lucio Fulci, who celebrated a birthday in the last month. I previously reviewed his Gates of Hell trilogy of City of the Living Dead, The Beyond, and House by the Cemetery back in episode 17. I also reviewed his classic Zombie as part of episode 48 on producer, director, and distributor Jerry Gross. Because there are so many films I haven't reviewed, I made a list of 18 films. A mix of them I've seen previously, I've seen them partially, and some I haven't seen at all. I took that list and put it on a wheel spin app. Out of those 18, I spun it 12 times. There will be three episodes with four reviews each. The first batch will be this episode for July 2nd. Then the second batch will be on the July 16th. And the final batch will be on July 30th. Along with each episode, I have segments featuring special guests. For this episode's segments, I will be joined by the lovely and knowledgeable Leanna Kersner, and we will discuss the top five monster introductions in popular culture. Stay tuned in the other episodes this month for surprise guests. Now, let's give the Wheel of Fulci a spin for the first film. And now for a look at the local news. Rubbish collectors on the north side 
had an unpleasant surprise this morning when one of the containers they were collecting proved to be holding the remnants of a local woman who apparently had been mutilated and dismembered with a power saw. Good morning. What the hell are you doing here? Uh, well, I slept in here. It's a lot quieter than that building site, and uh, nobody wakes you up uh, getting rid of uh, dead bodies. <coughs> of Death centers on Lester Parson, a serial killer with cannibalistic tendencies. He picks his victims from the classifieds, singling out wealthy widows who may not be considered the most attractive. He records them on video in sexual situations before he kills them and cooks a chunk of their remains. The leftovers he chops up and dumps the body. Add to that, he's a schizophrenic who has conversations with himself via audio tape recordings. Things go fine until one attempt is filled with mistakes. One woman nearly gets the best of him until he bashes her head in. When he dumps the body, it is witnessed by a homeless man. Later, the transient tries to blackmail Lester and succeeds, only to be the victim of vehicular homicide committed by Lester. Somehow, the homeless man is able to survive long enough to offer a description of his assailant. Now, it is a matter of time before Lester may be caught. Touch of Death was a late career entry in Fulci's filmography. The film lacks the ethereal dreaminess of the likes of City of the Living Dead, The Beyond, or House by the Cemetery. Instead, we get the -the over-the-top gore and pitch-black humor. Such a shift in tone compared to earlier efforts that I couldn't help but be captivated by the film. We have a small cast and a few local, a few set locations. Both implied this film was made on the cheap and on a short production schedule. Fulci himself wrote the script, which has its moments of misogyny. The depiction of women with unconventional bodies. One had hairy moles on her breasts and facial deformities, uh, one had a scar on her upper lip, it's going to raise some eyebrows. Angelo Matai provided the makeup effects. He's not a Giannetto de Rossi. Uh, when the corpse is chopped up with a chainsaw, you can tell it's a mannequin dummy uh, a mannequin dummy with gore on the inside. The gore effects for the car kill are so ridiculous, you find it hard to believe he was alive long enough to inform the police. Matai's other effects credits include Lamberto Bava's Demons and the classic Jinkata. 
Carlo Maria Cordillo, the go-to composer for Joe D'Amato and Claudio Fragasso, composed the music for Touch Death. A few of the cues from this film, specifically the music imitating the stabbing strings from Psycho, would make their way to Troll 2 two years later. Brett Halsey took on the role of Lester Parson. Halsey was a TV actor starting back in 1953. In the late 80s and 90s, he worked frequently with Fulci. Some of those films may appear in uh, future episodes for the month. Earlier in the decade, he was on classics like Airwolf, Dukes of Hazard, Knight Rider, and Charlie's Angels. His work in the Italian film industry goes back to the spaghetti westerns of the late 1960s. As Parson, Halsey has a charm, and you can buy into him wooing these women. Fulci regular Al Cliver took on the role of Randy, a bookie who has his sights on Lester for gambling debts. Cliver is almost unrecognizable from his look in films like Zombie and the Beyond. Uh, you can put them side by side, and they look like two completely different people. It's a, just a fantastic transformation on the part of Al Cliver. Touch of Death was a radical departure to the type of horror film I associated with Lucio Fulci, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. The movie moves at a brisk pace thanks to the script by Fulci and Brett Halsey as Lester Parson moving the film forward. The comedic violence helps as well. If you're only accustomed to Fulci's supernatural horror films, give this one a watch. Alright, now let's spin for the second film. Is it ready? I want to see it too, okay? The pictures are dead. Defective stock. Oh well, we better get home, kid. I just want to know how you're involved with that photograph and what it has to do with our children. Before I answer, how much do you know about parapsychology? Jewel symbolizes evil. Have you gone too? No, Tommy! No! Why is this happening to us? I don't understand it. We're powerless and it's frightening. And then the death of Wyler. And where did Luke go and Jamie Lee? And this illness of Susie's. The man is evil. He makes my flesh creep. <laughs> Help! <laughs> 
Professor George Hacker is an archaeologist exploring ancient ruins in Egypt. He comes across a tomb and unleashes a curse on him and his family. The curse strikes him blind while also terrorizing his family. His daughter becomes possessed by the curse. Hacker has no other option but to seek the assistance of a medium by the name of Adrian Mercado. Manhattan Baby is a late attempt by Fulci to jump on the possession trend started by the likes of The Exorcist. Instead of using the tried-and-true trope of Satanism, Fulci opts for an Egyptian take. The use of exotic creatures like cobras and scorpions are a nice touch, and the sand in the New York City setting adds some what-the-f moments. Those expecting a gore fest given this film was made after his high period between 1979 and 1981, where his films were littered with bloody, visceral set pieces, will be immensely disappointed. Besides a spike trap, some bloody fingers during an elevator sequence, and the stuffed bird attack, there isn't a lot of gore to speak of. There's even some optical effects which were a rarity in a Fulci film for that time. The film does a bit of recycling. The contact lenses from the beyond are reused by the elderly woman who gives the cursed amulet to the hacker's daughter. The music score by Fabio Frizzi is essentially his greatest hits album using original cues for Manhattan Baby, but also pieces from Zombie, City of the Living Dead, and the Beyond. If you're new to Fabio Frizzi's music, then this is a good place to start. For Fulci, Dardando Sacchetti, and Elisa Briganti wrote the story and the script for Manhattan Baby. The story has its moments with incoherency pertaining to the transportation and teleportation of victims. Then again, this was the case for their work on previous Fulci films they wrote for. Uh, if you want Prime Sacchetti, uh, check out his work for Dario Argento's Cat of Nine Tales, Mario Bava's Bay of Blood, or Antonio Magherti's Cannibal Apocalypse. 
It was Sachetti during an interview by Anger Bay that illustrated the difference in Italian film and film in other Western countries. Other films have the equal being permanently vanquished, while Sachetti, influenced by Italian Catholicism, shows that the triumph over evil is temporary and will need to be defeated again in the future. As we see at the end of Manhattan Baby, as another young girl is cursed with the same amulet as Susie Hacker. Now that family has to go through the same trials and tribulations as the Hacker family. See also the endings for Zombie and City of the Living Dead. Lead actor Christopher Connolly was one of many American actors who found a second career in Italian films. As Hacker, he takes the material seriously, giving immense credibility. He would jump back and forth between American and Italian productions. He would work on The Fall Guy with Lee Majors, and then he would go to Italy to work on The Atlantis Interceptors. Great theme by Oliver Onions, by the way. Then go back to America for Airwolf, then back to Italy for Strike Commando, the classic Bruno Mattei film with Red Brown. Apparently, the job opportunities were lucrative since they didn't have to claim income taxes on money made from movies outside of the U.S., he would do this right up to his death in 1988, having finished his career with Night of the Sharks. Giovanni Frezza should be familiar to horror fans for his infamous performance as Bob in House of the Cemetery. Infamous for the atrocious dub job given to him, however, this is a better dubbing job and far less grating. I'm fond of Frezza's performance in Warriors of the Wasteland for Castellari, and boy will I tackle that film in the future. Cinzia de Ponti, Cosimo Sinieri, Carlo de Mejo, Lara Lenzi, and Brigitta Bacoli round out the cast. Manhattan Baby is worth seeking out if you want a different spin on the possession story. Despite some head-scratching moments, you'll have a great mix of Fabio Frizzi's music, exotic locales, and Connolly giving his all with the Gonzo material by Fulci, Sacchetti, and Briganti. This one is pretty easy to find on streaming services. All right, now for the third film. From a place beyond time comes a terrifying challenge beyond imagination. Conquest. Two men join forces in a struggle for power. In a realm of fear. Conquest. An act of courage. To conquer the Queen of Darkness. They faced the armies of evil. To win... The Weapons of Light. Feel the power. Accept the challenge of... Conquest. In Conquest, a young man, Ilias, has bestowed upon him a magic bow and arrow. He is to travel the world, vanquishing any evil that he comes across. While capable of holding his own, when the numbers become too much for him, he is aided by an outlaw, Mace. Together, they take on the forces of evil. Terrorizing the land is an evil witch. 
She likes to cut open heads and snort the brains like they were cocaine. She's also turned on by the suffering of others. She has dreams of Ilias and prepares for his imminent arrival to stop her. Conquest is an Italian knockoff of popular fantasy films. Made in 1983, the film takes a lot of cues from Conan the Barbarian, but adds in so many odds and ends, it feels like its own film. You have full-body wolf costumes that seem more ferocious than your garden-variety furry. You have similar optical effects for the bow and arrow that Fulci used in the previous year's Manhattan Baby. However, if you want the gore you would expect from a Fulci film, boy, does this film deliver the goods. We've got decapitations, a woman gets wishboned, brains are busted out, you see an arrow to the groin. If you were disappointed by the shortage of viscera in Manhattan Baby, Fulci overcompensates with Conquest. Fulci is clearly having a ball with this film. Uh, The trio of Gino Capone, Carlos Vassallo, and Jose Antonio de la Loma throw in everything but the kitchen sink, and Fulci makes magic out of the various genre ingredients. Goblin co-founder Claudio Simonetti provided the music score. Unlike his work with Goblin, I'm hard-pressed to come up with a specific music cue from the film that would qualify as memorable. Uh, Considering this was around the time he did the music for Tenebre and Demons, both very solid earworms, Conquest is sadly forgettable for me. Andrea Acupinti was the young hero, Ilias. I totally buy him as the young destined hero. He takes the role seriously. He's an actor as much as a producer. Um, Save for acting in New York Ripper and A Blade in the Dark, His towering producer credits include Open Your Eyes, which was later remade as Vanilla Sky, the American remake of Funny Games, and the infamous Lars von Trier, Antichrist. George Rivero was a frequent player in Italian cinema and television. Rivero was the outlaw mace, aiding young Ilias in his quest. Out of all the credits to Rivero's name, the one I recognize the quickest was the infamous 1995 Mystery Science Theater 3000 classic, Werewolf, with Richard Lynch. Conquest is an enjoyable movie because of all the wacky stuff Fulci throws at the viewer, the gore, the monsters, the eccentric moments of the main villainess. Stoned or sober, Conquest is a very good time. Alright, now let's spin for the final film of the episode. Silver Saddle, we see Roy Blood, still a child, watching as a man named Barrett kill his father for being called out as a con artist. 
In quick revenge, Roy shot the man down and took his horse, donned in a silver saddle. Roy grows up to be a formidable bounty hunter. He is soon joined by a scavenger by the name of Two Strike Snake, an admirer of Roy's. A man named Turner offers Roy a bounty for killing Barrett, who is connected with the man who killed his father. Roy takes the bounty and heads to a graveyard where Barrett is expected, but it is a young boy, Thomas Barrett Jr., who arrives and is about to be ambushed until Roy saves him. At first, Roy leaves the boy in the desert due to his connection to the Barrett family. However, Roy comes back after a change of heart. Unfortunately, the other Barretts think Roy has kidnapped Thomas Jr. Lucio Fulci was no stranger to making spaghetti westerns. Before 1978's Silver Saddle, he made five of them, the most well-known being Four for the Apocalypse with Fabio Testi and Tomas Milian. Fulci, who a year later would become infamous for his use of gore and viscera, shows much restraint. Very little, if any, gore other than some blood squibs. There are some great set pieces in the film. One involves a battle against Mexican bandits, and Roy's only defense is some water and calcium carbide. Another one is a comically tense sequence as Thomas Jr. is hiding in a brothel from the men sent by his uncle. Fulci has never been known for being the sentimental type, but it shows in his westerns. The relationship between Roy and Thomas Jr. gives the film its heart. What starts as a volatile situation becomes one finding peace and not pacing blame towards those who don't deserve it. The ending shot of Thomas Jr. on a pony following Roy is one of the cheesiest but tender moments you'll ever find in a Fulci film. Uh, This is Fulci paying homage to a classic western like Shane. There was some great stunt work under the supervision of Nazarino Zamparella. We've seen him previously in Boot Hill as a circus performer, along with Spencer and Hill. He was one of the trio tormenting Franco Nero in Street Law. Some great stuff here. The trio of Franco Bixio, Fabio Frizzi, and Vince Tamperla provide a fine music score. While not as memorable as their work for Get Mean with Tony Anthony, they capture the spirit of the spaghetti western genre. Ken Tobias co-wrote the song Silver Saddle with the trio, and it's a standout track of the genre. for a strong lead. We understand his motivation. He works well with Sven Valeshi. Gemma was one of the frequent lead men of the Spaghetti Westerns. A Sky Full of Stars for a Roof, Sundance and the Kid, Adios Gringo, 
Price of Power, A Pistol for Ringo, Day of Anger. For as much as we give Franco Nero and Clint Eastwood as names associated with the genre, Gemma deserves the greater credit for his presence in it. Sven Valeschi may be one of the best portrayed and best dubbed children in Italian cinema. Forget Giovanna Frezza, Valeschi is a standout. Uh, very few credits to his name besides Silver Saddle, uh, The Night Before Christmas with Christopher George, and The Balloon Vendor with Lee J. Cobb are some of his other credits. This film marks one of the early roles for actress Cinzia Monreal, who plays Margaret, the sister of Thomas Jr. She plays up the concern for her younger brother and is charming in her scenes with Gemma. She would be known for her work on Joe D'Amato's Beyond the Darkness and Lucio Fulci's The Beyond. Character actor Jeffrey Lewis is having a ball as Two Strike Snake, a man who steals from the dead caught in the middle of gunfights. He's hilarious at times, despicable at others. Noted credits include My Name is Nobody, Dillinger, High Plains Drifter, and Night of the Comet. Rounding out the supporting cast are Donald O'Brien, Aldo Sambrell, and Ettore Mani. Silver Saddle is a standout entry in the final years of the Spaghetti Western era, Fulci shows a different side of himself as a filmmaker. Gemma and Valeshi have great chemistry. Jeffrey Lewis is a joy to watch. If you only know Fulci for his horror, Silver Saddle will be a pleasant surprise. And that finishes this portion of The Wheel of Fulci. Let me know your thoughts on these movies in the comments or in social media. The next batch of spins will be uploaded on Friday, July 16th. What movies will they be? Nobody but the wheel knows. And now for the top five monster introductions. Folks, Mackenzie Lambert here with a special countdown. There's often only one chance to make a good first impression, but sometimes a better executed reintroduction can do wonders. Today, we will be counting down the top five monster introductions in popular culture. This could mean movies, video games, literature, television, and other arenas in the realm of entertainment. My guest for this countdown is the host of the Boss Fight series on YouTube, Full Disclosure, which I was a backer of the crowdfunding campaign and currently a Patreon supporter. She's a pop culture columnist, critic, and pundit. If you're a fan of Canadian anthropomorphic footwear, like Ed the Sock, you will definitely recognize my guest, the lovely Leanna Kersner. Uh, Leanna, thank you for coming on. Hello, how are you? 
I know I cover the tip of the iceberg, but uh, what are some of the other projects you have yourself involved with? Jeez, oh, a bunch of stuff I can't talk about. The choice of NDAs in, um, uh, in gaming. But uh, yeah, I do my regular YouTube videos. Where I'm just, it's just sort of like gaming news. But yeah, Boss Fight is, is a big one. I'm working on doing the very last episode in that. And that's been a lot of work. Um, do have a monster <laughs> in Boss Fight. A giant furry monster that's kind of like a cat and kind of like Shao Kahn from Mortal Kombat. But uh, yeah, I mean, I play a lot of video games, so obviously that's influencing my list for sure. Uh, What was your introduction to the horror genre in general? And I'm going to guess that it was probably Roberta Williams's Phantasmagoria. Um, I don't know if that was the first one. Um, I read the book, The Silence of the Lambs, without my parents knowing (laughs) before Phantasmagoria came out. Um, It was either that or like the admittedly not very good Stephen King movies of that era as well. Um, Stuff like Pet Cemetery was definitely an early one. And I can't rule out the influence of the music video to Michael Jackson's Thriller. Uh, Yeah, definitely. Yep. Yeah, I mean, I think that was a lot. That was a thing, sort of an introduction to horror, that kind of Night of the Living Dead take on things. And a lot of people forget that was a lot of children of the 80s first exposure to that kind of thing. Mm. But I'm trying to think of um, other stuff. It's all so kind of mushed into that late 80s, early 90s thing. There was Mm. just a lot of great stuff going on in horror both in, in I mean, the 80s explosion of horror, Nightmare on Elm Street, Freddy Krueger, you know, um, Friday the 13th, Child's Play, which <laughs> evolves significantly, uh, even things like like Fool's Day and then Candyman. I mean, there was just this, this explosion of horror in the 80s and then video games in the 90s when you got into, well, I'll save it. I'll save it for my list because a few of those are on. Um but monster reveals, I found like introductions was a unique challenge, right? Yeah. Because a lot of a lot I found a lot of especially in the Stephen King stuff, when I thought about it, monsters were gradually revealed, right? Mm-hmm. It didn't have that kind of Bella Lugosi, well, you're seeing it for the first time, and it's sort of this amazing makeup thing, that yeah. sudden cutaway, right? Mm-hmm. Um and I tried to stay away from anything involving a jump scare because I hate jump scares. Yeah. Hate them, hate them, hate them, yeah. overused, cheap. So, yeah, it's, um, there's, there's a unique art to horror because um, you have to scare people in a somewhat safe way. You don't want to traumatize people. Mm-hmm. Um, I think people go to horror movies to sort of be scared and sort of squicked out, but at the same time... Um, you know, still feel safe, but also horror is getting harder and harder to do because the amount of violence, the amount of gore mm-hmm. on primetime drama television is so off the charts now. Mm-hmm. You know, shows like Dexter and Prodigal Son and all that stuff, it's getting harder and harder to scare people. 
that and also too horror used to have a, a definite like some of the directors had a definitive style to them like you think of Dario Argento who had all this rich lighting in his movies and these gorgeous looking kills and a lot of today's horror is just very straightforward uh, you just see the stabbing you don't really have any build up or you don't have any art there's no real art to it like there the used stuff, to be I think the stuff coming out of Asia is solving that problem mm-hmm. though I mean J-horror it's all this combination of like technology and fear right Mm-hmm. But like old television screens and oh, Tetsuo oh, the Iron Man, yeah. yeah, 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 stuff like that, or even what is it, Juon, the original Ring, mm-hmm. or was that the Grudge? Uh, either, I mean, when America starts redoing J horror films, you know that something very interesting is going on in in Japanese cinema. But then, you know, the the uh, Koreans mm-hmm. are also starting to develop a, a horror industry as well. They're they're doing some very very interesting things and their take on what is scary is different than ours. Mm-hmm. I mean, a good horror all tends to have an element of social commentary to it. I don't want to get, I don't want to get political <laughs> on things, but it, it tends to kind of touch on, you know, in the eighties, it was all, uh, morality plays of kids, you know, teenagers that did something bad. And then, you know, got killed by some monster. They were all, they were always somewhere they weren't supposed to be or doing something they weren't supposed to be doing. And there was that almost classic fairy tale feeling. Yeah. The films of the eighties, which I mean, if you go back and read the original versions of a lot of classic fairy tales, they're horror movies. They're gory, right? Oh yeah, oh yeah. I mean, you, you think of Little Red Riding Hood, and then you see the original uh, Little Red Riding Hood, and then you see something like A Company of Wolves, and it's like that is totally what that story should be. Well, I mean, the original story, it's like she cuts open the wolf from like the woodsman. It's like gory as anything because it was oral tradition, right? You had to hold mm-hmm. an audience. Yep. Yeah. But I mean, a, a lot of the stuff um, on my list is from video games. And then the two from movies I picked are not um, not actually horror movies, which I found that really interesting. I have one on my main list from a video game. And then one of my honorable mentions is from a video game as well. Right. I, I, I have no idea how to rank them, though. I'm just going to pick them <laughs> as I go because I can't choose. I'm terrible. I admit, I'm terrible at these lists because if I like something, I like something. I don't like something. I don't like something. It's organic. I reviewed video games for years. I hate numbered reviews. So it's sort of like rankings. Are so, like, how, how do you compare, you know, just, just broad strokes? How do you compare something like Evil Dead to... Uh, Pacific Rim. Yeah, that's a fair point. Right? Like, you just can't. Uh, okay, this should be really fun. Then I'm looking forward to this. Uh, okay, um, you're the guest, so we'll go ahead and have you reveal your number five. Uh, Pan's Labyrinth, The Pale Man. Oh, yeah. 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 And I know this is a weird place to start. It's just because that was the one I picked last. Um, the thing that's interesting about this is you expect a monster reveal to be a big da da da, right? But it wasn't that. He's sitting there, inert, right? In plain sight. Yep. It, it was more like a video game monster reveal than a movie reveal. And so we know what the monster looks like mostly. He's just sitting there, sitting there. He's withered. He looks weak, right? And it was just that, okay, eyeballs on a plate. You can kind of tell what's coming. But the mm-hmm. big burn of she slowly goes over, unlocks that door, and then, like, the eyes go in the hands and just <laughs> that, that. 
is the reveal. And it goes from kind of skinny to scary instantly. And then it's terrifying. And no matter how many times I see it, I'm talking about it, I'm getting chills. It's so, so, so effective. And it's that connection between horror movie tropes and classic fairy tales that, you know, Guillermo del Toro was going for. And Doug Jones, just under all that makeup, just his body language, he just does such a great job of selling that creature. The the physicality involved, especially in that character, because it was a lot of stumbling, right? Um, that's different than a lot of the characters he plays that are very, very placed with mm-hmm. the movements, like a Star Trek Discovery character. Um, he was Abe Sapien on Hellboy too, I believe. Uh, very, very placed. Whereas that... You're sweating in that makeup, right? He can't go to the bathroom. Mm-hmm. He's locked in there for a really, really, really long time. And when you're starting to feel fatigued, those stumbly movements are so difficult, like yeah. beyond difficult because you've lost when you can walk in and do a very placed movement. You can get over the fatigue. But when you're using those compensator muscles, it's so much harder. Oh, uh, yeah. Very good. Very good selection. Uh, okay, my number five uh, reflects my love for Italian horror films, particularly of the late 70s, early 80s. Uh, it's the first zombie we see in Lucio Fulci's Zombie from 1979. Uh, the film opens with a sailing vessel just meandering through New York Harbor, almost collides with the Staten Island Ferry. Two patrolmen board the boat to investigate. We see rotting food covered in maggots and worms. And then we find a disembodied hand and jump to this rotund... Uh, almost King Kong Bundy-looking type zombie that just crashes from the bottom of the ship, bites one of the officer's neck, and then is shot overboard, which we later find out is not a means of zombie extermination. He's just going to make his way to the harbor and make his way into New York City. And just the look of this zombie, you have the eyes closed, the blackening eyes. This is like, this is not your George Romero zombie. This is like your classic Haitian voodoo Jacques Tourneur zombie, and it's very effective for starting the movie. Yeah, I... I thought I thought of that one and I figured it would be on a list so I didn't pick it because that's a classic. I mean, I guess that segs into the other one. I had, now this was tough to pick one from the Resident Evil series because there are yeah. so many great reveals in that mm-hmm. game series, right? Games, not the movies. Um, yes. But I went with the original, the similar thing. That first zombie reveal in a zombie story is so, so, so important. Mm-hmm. And, and that... Sorry, go ahead. Oh, no. And even Claire in the diner when she first encounters the zombie in Resident Evil 2 is just a great classic night right. moment. They're really good at introducing their zombies. Um, but that first one in that first game, yeah. none of us who played it knew what we were in for. I mean, we'd never played a video game like that before, right? Yeah. It, mm-hmm. it, there was nothing like it. And as cheesy as the voices are, they were deliberately going for that 80s action slasher <laughs> vibe. But going into that mansion, again, it's the setup, right? The mm-hmm. ticking clock, the footsteps, and then you go in and you hear them. Like the the chewing, yeah. for lack of a better term. And then it cuts to a cut scene. And it's it's terrifying to this day for me, even though I know it looks like somebody drew a clown face on a balloon. But yeah. just the way that thing turns, right? And mm-hmm. it's it's like scared the crap. Part of it is because it is so uncanny valley, and games of that time were so good at using the uncanny valley to mm-hmm. just 
horrify. And it, it's a fa- it's a slow zombie, not a fast zombie, which is very important to me. Yes. Yep. Um, and I, I think there is a place for like you know the hordes in, in games like Days Gone and stuff like that. But just the it, it, it's the inevitability of this thing's gonna eat me. And mm-hmm. of course, the guns. If you're playing as Chris, you have no gun. But even yeah. as Jill, you can't run and shoot at the same time. So that first pow, pow I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> so good and the fact that it was a whole new survival horror had existed but biohazard the original japanese mm-hmm. name was sort of the thing that solidified the survival horror genre and i think it was because they were so good at those introductions and it's just gone on you know the first hunter the dogs are oh, equally yeah. scary going to that chainsaw dude in resident evil 4 you know the the first Las plagas in mm-hmm. four and into seven and eight, um, eight is Resident Evil Village is pretty much all cool monster reveals. That's the well, entire I mean, point of the game. <laughs> yeah, and the original introduction of the nemesis in the original Resident Evil 3 was just well done as well. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. yeah. Oh, the, the tyrant reveal yeah. finally at the end after all that. They're just really, really, really good at reveals, so it was tough to pick one. Yeah. So I went with the one that started it all. Awesome. Very good. Uh, all right, number fours. Uh, that was my number four. Oh, that was number four. Okay, yeah. cool. All right, uh, number four, Leatherface in the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre from 1974. Uh, you have teens visiting their own family, their old family home. One of them wanders off and comes across another house. He lingers in the door until he's drawn in by the sound of pig squealing, and then he trips on the doorway, and you just have Leatherface just coming out of nowhere, that huge hammer in hand, and just cracks the guy's head right open. Just... A fantastic short buildup, but very effective. Yeah, yeah, I thought of that one too. See, I went the other way because I figured that'd get picked. So my number three is Pyramid Head from Silent Hill 2. Uh, yeah. oh, obviously, inspiration from a lot of sources, those faceless uh, or, or quasi faced. If you look mm-hmm. at the original concept art, it's just kind of a dude with a bag over his head, right? But Pyramid yep. Head is the embodiment of the main character's desire to be tortured because of his own internalized guilt. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of psychosexual stuff going on in Silent Hill, to put it lightly. And so this character's um, introduction has him raping two female mannequins. I mean, you can't quite tell what's going on because the graphics were somewhat rudimentary at the time. It still holds up, though. You forget these are like... I think it was original playstation graphics but the jerkiness and the way the you know it, they're using that kind of bug that tendency for things to twitch and yeah. the fact that it's mannequins not people and then the way he's again that that staggering thing being scary and then they use the whole enemy outside of the closet <laughs> motif to make it and this bastard hunts you for the rest of the freaking game and that wouldn't have been nearly so effective if the introduction to the character hadn't been another one of those taking the training wheels off of what we expect from video games moments. It was over the top. Mm -hmm. It's controversial to this day for a lot of reasons, but holy hell, was it an effective intro. Oh yeah. And it's, yeah, that's the video game version of like how you see in some horror movies where the person's head is spinning so fast and like right out of Jacob's ladder. Yeah. But you get, you get the overwhelming physical force, the just disgust of what's going on. Mm -hmm. Um, the, uh, the, the punishment angle, right. The, the, the torture angle, the sense of something wrong, but also just like 
really cool visual design, right? He looks kind of like yeah. a butcher because because that's what he is. You don't mm-hmm. think of Pyramid Head as a rapist throughout the game. That's what I find so interesting. <laughs> it's just more meat, like Pyramid Head. Everything is just meat to him. Mm-hmm. And we know so little about the character. He doesn't even have an official name. Uh, the Red Pyramid, Pyramid Guy, bunch of different things. But he's just, the minute you see Pyramid Head, I'm not even sure there's an official gender for Pyramid Head. Mm-hmm. You know that's Pyramid Head. Just yep. so, so, so well done top to bottom. And he actually made a really good transition to Dead by Daylight. He's actually probably one of the more interesting characters you can play in that game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, they put him in a bunch of odd stuff, too. Like, <laughs> the Japanese just do that. Like, you know, let's throw Kratos in Hot Shots Golf. See what happens. <laughs> oh, wonderful. So what's your All number right. three? My number three is Frankenstein's Monster in the 1931 Frankenstein uh, from director James Whale. Uh, after we learn about the brain inside, the creation is of an Abbey Normal type. Uh, we hear the footsteps, uh, then a door opens, but the monster's back is still towards us. The monster walks backwards through the door, then slowly turns around, revealing that amazing Jack Pierce makeup that all Frankenstein makeups were based off of. And then three quick zooms, the dead eyes, the sunken cheeks. And I can only imagine people at the time were absolutely horrified by this. And it's, it just shows you just how that makeup still just works even today. Well, just the fact that that has been copied over and over and Mm -hmm. over again, that series of shots, that choreography just speaks to how effective it is. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, My number two actually ties into the simplicity that way as well. The T-Rex in the original Tomb Raider. Oh, yeah, because that just comes out of nowhere. It comes out of the darkness. And the interesting thing about the original Tomb Raider, you forget how garbage those graphics were. I mean, Lara Croft's breasts are triangles. (laughs) Her face is just sort of a sticker on a series of polygons, but you're running through this, the first sort of major tomb in the game, and you've taken out a couple of little red dinosaurs that seem pretty scary at first. You think you know what's going on. You think your Mm -hmm. base is covered. And then all of a sudden, it's the best use of a draw line in video games ever, because back then you could only see so far ahead. Yeah. Right? Because the game actually had to draw the map as you were wondering. So it's just black. And then out of this black comes this giant freaking T-Rex, and everybody is running towards it, and then they see the and they immediately yeah, they turn, around turn around and run away from it, <laughs> shooting seemingly hopelessly with these two. Suddenly, the twin shooters don't seem so epic anymore in terms of weaponry, because the game just takes you from going, ha-ha, little dinosaurs, to, oh my god! And it's so simple. I still like, even though they made it super-duper charged, in Tomb Raider Anniversary, when they remastered the game, that original, just because sim- similar to the, the Frankenstein reveal, they, they had the bare bones of how to make it cool, right? Mm-hmm. And they made yep. this lasting, iconic, oh my God moment. <laughs> and it seems that video games are really good with, other, with uh, dinosaur introductions. Like I can think, immediately think of the T-Rex and Dino Crisis as being another example of that. Yeah, I think it's because games are based on sort of anticipation and reward that they're mm-hmm. they're good at it in that regard. But also, I mean, let's face it, they're heavily inspired by movies. The thing that impresses me is when they take a movie trope and instead of just copying it, 
they find something new to do with it. And that's what's mm-hmm. so fascinating to me about the whole Japanese industry is to see what they take from Western culture, what they think about it, and how they try to emulate it. Mm-hmm. It's it's fascinating. I it, learning what another part of the world thinks about us. You know. Yeah. Yep. So your number two is uh, my number two is a special place in my heart. It's the liquor in the OG Resident Evil Two from nineteen ninety eight. I remember first playing this, and my mom was in the living room with me watching me play this. She was reading and then just casually watching me. I get to that door in the the waiting room that has the window where you see a glimpse of the liquor. And even my mom is like, what the hell was that? (laughs) It's like the continued buildup with, uh, you know, the body with the static description of the head being twisted off and the blood dripping from the ceiling. Then you get that glorious cutscene of the liquor crawling on the ceiling. And it's still I'm actually getting goosebumps just describing it now. It's still just one of the great sequences and monsters in Resident Evil. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And of course, you know, the dead space necromorphs borrowed a mm-hmm. lot from the liquors in Resident Evil. For I think that kind of established that type of monster mm-hmm. in games. Just Resident Evil doesn't get a lot of, well, they did at the time they got a lot of kudos for their sound design. But going forward, they don't get the credit I think they're due in terms of sound design. Because you can have the coolest visuals in the world. If your sound isn't good, your game's not going to be scary fun. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. So we're on to number ones now, are we? Oh, actually, uh, yeah, actually, any honorable mentions? Okay, I have so many, many honorable mentions. <laughs> it's hard for me to pick one. I admit, uh, one of the ones was the, uh, the Hydra in the original God of War. That okay. giant three-headed monster. And... It's not so much just the opening cutscene. That whole fight as the intro to the game, it's the first boss you encounter in God of War ever. It is so bloody and so violent. It just sets the stage <laughs> for the rest of the game, which is, of course, sickly, of course, historically accurate blood, gore, nudity, and trauma. Uh, so it just, the, the whole thing is just a violent blood ballet with just like spurts <laughs> everywhere. You're dropping giant, like, I don't, I don't remember what those things are on it. Just so, so jibby, squicky, yuck from start to finish. <laughs> and there are, there are a million others too. But I mean, that's the thing. Then after five, I start going into, um, okay, you know, Carrie, when she shows up in blood, and yeah. the first time that kid in Pet Cemetery has that scalpel, you know, and all all the stuff. But there, there does seem to be sort of a you get those five, and then there's this box of like twenty that I really, really, really like. Right? Yeah. Uh, the one I will mention I have written down mm-hmm. here uh, just taps into one of my deepest terrors and horrors. It's the frostbite spiders from Elder Scrolls Five Skyrim. Uh, you go through the tutorial stage, you fight all these, you know, other enemies, depending on if you side with the Empire or if you side with the Rebels. And then I saw the I saw the glimpses of the egg sacks and the webbing, and immediately I'm like, no. Why, why of all the creatures you had to pick, you had to pick these creatures? Uh, and as soon as the one jumped down from the ceiling, I just freaked out. I actually threw my controller at the television. Uh, and I just had two flame spells equipped and I just like, just kill it with fire. And here I am just with my eyes closed. Just, okay, hopefully I got them all. But yeah, the frostbite spider is just, ugh. 
that's like that one uh oh i forget what they call the um the splicers in bioshock that first level that oh it, yeah knows that the plastic surgeon you go into the morgue and you turn around and there's one right behind you doing absolutely nothing yeah here's oh, the god. crap out of yeah. even when i know it's coming it's like oh god no oh god no nah. <laughs> like uh so simple but it's just because it's behind you mm-hmm. i have kind of had it with being chased by unkillable enemies in survival horror games. Lady Dimitrescu in Resident Evil Village kind of made me love it again. Yeah. But, oh my God, there is just something. Find another way to scare people, please. Amnesia was cool. Mm-hmm. But as as fun as Mr. X was in the remake of Resident Evil 2, I don't know, these, these remakes, they don't have the same sparkle for me as the originals just because it's easier to do a do-over. Yeah, and also, too, significantly less content, because if I'm looking at the content in the original Resident Evil 3 and then the Resident Evil 3 remake, and it's like, I think when you have less content in your PS4 remake than in your PS1 original, there's a problem. Yeah, I almost put Sephiroth on on the list. And I'm like, does he count as a monster? He's kind of a monster. But, I mean, when we actually learned out what Sephiroth's deal is, it was pretty epic. <laughs> <laughs> And they they might be retconning that in uh, in the new games. Ah, yeah, they might be. That's why I'm not saying what happens because Uh, it's a spoiler and it's a spoiler of a spoiler. Like the whole spoiler thing. If something's mm -hmm. been out for six months, we should be allowed to talk about it. But now with remakes, we can't. Yeah, drives me crazy. (laughs) Yep. All right, your number one. This one's outside the box. Okay. Mr. Stay Puffed from Ghostbusters. Ah, uh, this, uh, I, I, Ghostbusters is my all-time favorite movie, and I'm picking myself for not including Stay Puffed, because I thought, okay, people don't think of him as a monster. People yeah. don't think of him as a movie monster. He <laughs> is a movie monster. He is the guy who's going to end the, but the fact that it's done with a monologue oh, yeah, by Ray Stance, uh, Ray yeah. Stance and yep. the fact that it is a classic, almost Shakespearean theatrical with arches, it's the city of New York forming mm-hmm. as arches, but it is the big Greek, you know, proscenium of hail, you know, the herald does his speech and then doom, doom, it's Shakespeare, it's Godzilla, and it's the <laughs> utter absurdity of it. You laugh and you realize it's scary and then you laugh again because it's all these you know cues of cuteness he's the michelin man he's godzilla and then that first then it then it's then it's um king kong mm-hmm. and there's all these things combined into one of the classic moments of any movie ever i admit the original ghostbusters is one of my favorites as well and it's one of the last great dialogue driven comedies Mm-hmm. As well, you can't make movies like that anymore. But yeah, the Mr. Stay Puffed introduction <laughs> is one of my all-time favorites. I even have a Mr. Stay Puffed back in my background somewhere. Uh, I don't know where he is right now, though. Yeah, I just, <laughs> what a great moment of movie making, right? It's, it's a whole thing. What a, In a movie that already had a lot of visual spectacle, mm-hmm. they knew they had to top it. They did. Yep. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And just that when he has that joyful expression on his face, but then when he looks at the Ghostbusters, the eyes oh, arch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just like, why is this cute thing frightening me? You know, yeah, it just like I said, you know, those borrowed. There's an art to an adapted trope 
it can be totally reductive or it can be something like that that does it so honestly and so earnestly and combines so many things that it, it becomes this new thing through amalgamation of adaptation, right? But yeah, so, so well done because he, he had to overcome the, the, scary, the scary dogs and the chicken soap, right? Yep. Like, how, how do you top that, Mr. Stay Puffed? <laughs> Uh, even some of the ones from early on, like the, the ghost librarian, just when she morphs uh, after they try to grab her. And it's like that's it's just perfectly balancing the horror and the comedy. Yeah. Yeah. They did a really good job with that. And they didn't. The other thing I liked about it is they any other movie would have foreshadowed the reveal. Right. Because mm-hmm. foreshadow is what it comes out of nowhere because mm-hmm. the issue is not that the issue is Gozer. Right. Gozer, the yeah. destroyer. That's just about the form. And the it deals with also the fact that. You think nothing. It stands is not built for um, thinking nothing. Yeah. And the fact that these very smart scientists, because I mean, the Ghostbusters is a metaphor for the 1980s uh, economic recession, mm-hmm. right? Where it was the first time that white collar professionals lost their jobs, not just blue collar guys. So scientists putting on overalls, that was very poignant at the time. So now these scientists putting on overalls, their college-educated masculinity is already getting a knock. Now they're going to get thumped by their favorite childhood mascot. <laughs> Just so well done! Yep. Uh, and I feel bad. Okay, now I got to try and follow that up with my number one. Uh, it is young Michael Myers in the original Halloween from 1978. All first-person perspective uh, with the unmasking reveal. Someone stalking a girl and her boyfriend. By the time the stalker is in the living room, the boyfriend is already leaving. So work, work on your game there, fella. Uh, the stalker finds a mask and attacks her. Uh, we find the killer was a little boy, Michael Myers, and he just murdered his sister. So many great elements from Dean Cundy's cinematography. And you got John Carpenter's music score in the background. It's just, this is how you reveal a monster to the purest extent that i can think of and and there isn't a ton of visual spectacle in that like you said it's all the the idea Mm -hmm. of it you know that evil comes in unexpected places and then it's immediately you start going how did this happen Mm -hmm. right like there there was a lot there was a lot of that in that type of um movie in the 80s and i think um i think michael myers (sighs) I got to be careful about getting into people's heads. I think Halloween is something of an overlooked franchise in terms of it tends to get eclipsed in nostalgia by Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah, and also people just have... I'm glad not more and more people are turning around on Halloween 3 just because it was so different from the previous two Halloween films. And then after that, we got back into the Michael Myers routine of 4 and 5. Is it still a William Shatner mask? An adapted William Shatner mask? I think they've just changed it up after that. I think that, so. Yeah, they've changed it up so much after that. But yeah, it's no longer it's no longer the Captain Kirk mask. Yeah, but I mean, that's what made it kind of cool as well. Like, Michael Myers is always like, okay, Jason Voorhees makes a hockey mask scary. But mm-hmm. kind of is. It doesn't look like a face. The fact that it looks like a face and it's still... It almost pulls from that Frankenstein look, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the the design of that character is so simple and i think that's part of what makes it scary right it's Mm -hmm. it's uh halloween the original halloween is just one of those movies that i can't explain why it works 
but it really does. And to think it was not a box office success at the time, like uh, it seems like it seems to be the case a lot with a lot of John Carpenter films. Like uh, The Thing was a movie that bombed at the box office, but yet it wanted to have this great second life. And so it's kind of the same thing with Halloween and The Fog and Big Trouble in Little China. It's all these great films he's done, but yet people didn't seem to appreciate them at the time. Did we both include did we both avoid including The Thing because we thought it was just too pat? I gosh, and which introduction? Like, do you just pick like the the opening where it's just the dog and you're disarmed into thinking, okay, what could this dog possibly be doing, or like why these people are hunting it down? And then now he's in the dog kennel with the other dogs, and is that an introduction as well? Like, I don't know which one would you pick. That that was what I found with a lot uh, with um, uh, Freddy Krueger mm-hmm. as well. That his his um, his introduction is segmented. Right. So it's yeah. not one great moment. It's a series of them. And I think probably Jason Voorhees could be similar. But the, and then when is the true reveal on that one? Right. Is it the yeah. first time you see the character? Or is it the very end of the movie? Yeah. Uh, yeah. But yeah, the um, how, how what do you think about the evolution of the Halloween franchise too, from that sort of very kind of psychological element to what do you do after that first movie? It was supposed to be a long shot. They made a sequel. Um, it that takes place immediately after the right, first movie. Right. And then we get sort of more and more big budget in the whole thing. And yeah. yet not. Yeah. You have Michael Myers returning inexplicably and you also have Donald Pleasance returning inexplicably as well because they were both blown up at the end of the second one. So it's like, and yeah, then I still have to see the 2018 uh, retcon because let's be honest, that's what it was. It was meant to get rid of all the other sequels. So yeah, I still got to see that one. But uh, I think Halloween just kind of fell into the trappings of the 80s slasher genre where it's like, okay, we need the body count. Uh, people know who Michael Myers is. Let's just stick to that formula. And and I wonder if that's part of the reason that people don't remember it the same way. I mean, okay, the Nightmare on Elm Street movies got pretty stupid too with Freddy mm-hmm. Krueger in Mario. But that was almost so <laughs> dumb that you kind of love him with the power glove and all that stuff. Like, that was just shameful, man. But at the same time, it was good 80s camp. Mm-hmm. Whereas... I also think Freddy Krueger is a very, it's funny. We think of Freddy Krueger as the cuddly monster villain. Cause he was funny, but wasn't he a, despite the fact that he was a child. Yeah. 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 Like, <laughs> like that's dark, man, that they managed to go that way. I, I like the way I, again, it wasn't a reveal. I really like Chucky as a monster from child's play. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious to see what they do. Cause they're remaking that. Aren't they? Yeah, they already did one remake. I'm not sure if it did well enough that they're going to do another one, but yeah. I'm sure it's, it's just bringing back Jennifer Tilly and Brad Dourif. That's all we need. Yeah. And so, but he starts like as a box, right? Mm-hmm. So I couldn't figure out what Chucky's actual reveal was. Because we went in knowing what the monster looked like in his yeah. because it wasn't like Cloverfield. If I had to guess for Chucky, it's when the mother finds out that the batteries are not inside the doll and then he comes to life in front of her. I would probably say that's the default, uh, the, the reveal. The reveal. Yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah, that was an interesting one because we knew going in, we're, we're seeing a movie about a psycho doll. 
Mm-hmm. So in a way, it was sort of, and I found that with a lot of the really iconic characters, it was more of a transformation than a reveal. Mm-hmm. And I'm a sucker for those classic Wolfman transformations. Oh, with the I lap admit, dissolves. yeah. <laughs> but I couldn't, I couldn't pick one. I couldn't pick one. It, so it, it just, uh, yeah, it's it's interesting how those really great introductions, those really great reveals, are a surprisingly elusive thing. You know mm-hmm. a great one when you see it, but it's it's not essential for a great horror film. It's it's like that. It, it's just like this cool lightning in a bottle moment, like Mr. Stapuff. Yeah. Which I'm so glad you like that because I was afraid this is going to be stupid. You know? uh, no, I, I I could never not Ghostbusters. It's just uh, I I grew up with it. I've I've written like little almost theses on YouTube videos for it. So, nice. Yeah I, yeah, yeah. I didn't know that. It's just it. Movies didn't have to be one thing back then, right? I'm oh. I'm glad we're kind of getting out of that. Now on Netflix with shows like Lucifer, where it's like an action comedy drama. It's everything. Yes, you're right. It also has horror elements. Um, they actually did like a, a, a running decapitation this season. I was like, hello. Uh, but yeah, Netflix is allowing, you know, weird shows like Warrior Nun to go in there and uh, Teenage Bounty Hunters, which I'm sorry, only got one season. But yeah, maybe we'll start to see because... I, I appreciate what Anchor Bay does. I know people really love Anchor Bay, but that churn is starting to get derivative. Mm. You know, with that being sort of the horror hub. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, there's a lot of great other avenues. I mean, I can think of Full Moon Entertainment from Charles Bands, a good mm, avenue mm. for horror stuff. Uh, Blue Underground, which was co, which was uh, founded by Bill Lustig, who found Anchor Bay. It's oh, also another good one I as well. I haven't heard of that one. I'll check that out. Okay, mm-hmm. cool. Cool. Awesome. Well, this was a lot of fun. I I, I mean, uh, I definitely would like to have you on again sometime in the near future to do another fun list like this, because this was a blast. Cool. Uh, uh, where can people find you on social media? Uh, Red Leanna K on Twitter, Leanna K on Facebook, though I'm not there much. Um, and then YouTube is Leanna K. And then I'm Red Leanna K on Twitch. So Tuesdays at 6 p.m. Eastern, Thursdays at at 1 p.m. Eastern, that's for Europeans because they have to stay up super late on... <laughs> on um, we do do a lot of horror games just because I get really angry at them um, <laughs> and I swear a lot. Uh, but we do a lot of, like, like right now I'm playing Yakuza 0. All right. This odd kind of Japanese, you're a mobster in the 80s kind of thing. So it's all, it's all before uh, Japan had its lost decade economically so it's all very flashy uh, and blingy uh, but it's all over the place and twitch is fun because the cool thing is the chat's really high quality mm-hmm. we they sort of self-police and we don't allow nonsense and shenanigans and trolling so it's a nice place to chat about stuff like this it, it's a it's actually it's like a little clubhouse online it's not a big audience yet but i'd kind of be a little bit sad when when it's really going like e3 and stuff the, it gets big and I'm like, no, mm-hmm. I want to read everybody's comment. But yeah, yeah, it's 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 fun times if you're looking for hangouts. Uh, yeah, all right, definitely. Yeah, I'm on uh, Twitch as well. So I'll definitely have to uh, check out your content then. All right, so that's uh, going to wrap up uh, this list of monster introductions. Thank you very much again, Leanna, for uh, taking time out of your schedule for this fun little uh, chat. And uh, we'll uh, be back later. Thank you. Thanks. 
And that wraps up this episode of Mac in the Movies. Thank you for listening. And a special thank you again to Leanna Kersner for taking the time to chat monsters. Her social media and links will be available in the description box. I'll have another great guest or two on the next episode. Who is it? What's the subject? Eh, you're just going to have to wait. It will be worth it. If you like this content and would like to see the program grow, sharing this podcast will be in a big help. If you love movies, be they low-budget, obscure, controversial, badass, or any other descriptor you wish to use, just help this sh- get this show out there. Uh, I do have a PayPal and a Venmo as tip jars. Support media you watch or listen to. Spread the word or chip in a buck or two. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I took down my Twitch because it's the summer and without AC in my work area, I have no interest in streaming at this time because it's so damn hot. I'll have it back up closer to fall. Until next time, this is Mackenzie Lambert signing off.